Well, you can grab a seat and check this out. Here are a couple funny, creative, romantic ways to ask someone to a dance. Feel free to use this for your promposals in the spring. First one's real simple. You get into their car, you grab their phone, you go to the navigation app. In the search bar, you type the dance and you just wait till they notice. Have your parents call his parents and set it up like a play date, like you're, when you're six. Start a rumor in your school that the other girl who wanted to ask him also wanted to do something crazy and outlandish and romantic, but she went overboard by tattooing the question on her forearm. And then you ask him before he figures out that you're a big liar. If you're sitting next to him while you're taking a test, maybe write down, will you go to the dance with me as an additional question on the test. That way, if he's copying off you, you got him, okay? And then never date that guy because he's probably going to sleep with a bunch of other people. Buy him a pizza. And then when he's opening up the box, you ask him to the dance. Grab this CPR doll from health class. Duct tape it around your waist and walk around school. And whenever you see him, point to his eyes and say, this could be us, but you're playing. Get a cop to do it. Write it in one of those paint markers on your own car and then park in his parking space until he says yes. Go to your school, have them announce over the loudspeaker that the dance is happening, but don't have them give any of the details about the address. And then at the end of the announcement, have them say, for directions, ask Rebecca or whatever your name is. We love to be picked, and some of us maybe are going to use those tips and tricks. I highly recommend it. Some of them were solid gold, especially the CPR dummy. Uh, but, man, we, we love to be picked, right? We, we love to be selected. We love to be chosen to be the, the date to that dance, right? We love to be uh, selected in that cool way where they, you know, decorate our car or leave the candy in our room or whatever it is. We love to be uh, chosen for maybe just a different type of date, right? It's not a dance. You just go hang out and go to song or whatever it is. We love to be chosen for teams. We love to be chosen for organizations. We love to be chosen for leadership. We love to be chosen people. It's something that we love. Like when, we, when someone looks at us and we're like, they're like, you, you. You, I'm slowly selecting all of you. And you're like, you're, okay, yeah, this is great. Like I can, I, I feel affirmed by this. I feel like maybe there's, there is a purpose to this thing. Like, I, man, it's just, it's, an, it's a wonderful feeling to be chosen. And yet we get uncomfortable and maybe we aren't only just uncomfortable, but sometimes we even get confrontational when we talk about God picking people. That makes us a little uncomfortable. Even as I said that, some of you were like, oh. No, we get uncomfortable with that. Talking about God selecting people, choosing people to receive salvation. A theological concept that we call election. We get uncomfortable with that. We get controversial about that. We get into fights about that. We get fired up about election because it makes us feel like God isn't being fair. Or maybe it makes us feel like mankind doesn't have true free will, and that upsets us. Or maybe it makes us feel like God is choosing some to live and some to die. And how could he do that? How could a loving God choose you to live and him to die? This week, we are halfway through our series of talking about salvation. 
And we're doing this because we as a church, man, we love to talk about salvation. We love to uh, talk about, you know, finding salvation and needing salvation and getting saved. And we love to discuss this topic. And yet what we find is that we have a lot of consistency in talking about it, but we don't always have a lot of clarity. We don't always explain the terms that we use. We don't always explain the concepts that we're just kind of throwing around. And so what we're doing over the next few weeks, we're halfway, we've got three weeks to go. We're talking about salvation. We're talking about soteriology, which is just the big Christian name for the study of salvation. And we're doing this because what we find, what I've found through my study, what I'm hoping you'll find through this study, is that the greater we understand salvation, the better that we grasp the concept of salvation, the ramifications, the the nitty-gritty details of salvation, the better we understand that, the greater we appreciate the incredible gift of life God has offered to humanity by faith, or by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. As we understand it more, we appreciate it all the more. And it's a beautiful thing. Even election, I promise. Even election is something that can be beautiful. As we discuss the doctrine of election, what we'll find this morning is that it should radically alter the way that you view God's love. And it should alter the way that you view mankind's freedom. But it will change your view on those things in a way that you probably wouldn't expect. And it's beautiful. It's beautiful, I promise. Stick with me. It's beautiful. So as we look at this idea of election, man, one of the classic passages that people turn to, one of the clearest passages people turn to in talking about the idea of election or predestination is Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. We're going to be here all morning. If you have a Bible, you want to turn to Ephesians 1. We're going to be jumping away from it, but we'll always, we'll keep coming back. Ephesians 1, 4 through 5 tells us, for he, meaning God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight and love. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will. Right here, what we see is the Apostle Paul laying out, right? He's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these words. This is God's words through the Apostle Paul clearly laying out the idea of election and predestination. When he says that we've been chosen in Christ, that's another way to say that is we've been elected in Christ. Because ultimately, that's what election is, right? Just the bare basic meaning of that term election is that you are choosing someone or something, right? That's why we hold elections. That's why we're about a year away from a presidential election where you go to the polls and you say, I want this guy or I want that lady or I want... No one. I don't know. Like you you go and you choose someone or something in that election. That's what election is. You're just making a choice. And when we see this idea of predestining us, the idea of predestination, all that means when you break that down in the Greek, what you see is that they've slammed two words together that just kind of creates the idea of before occurrence or before time or beforehand. So you're looking at predestining, meaning just, okay, this is something that I've chosen, or this is something that I've decided uh, before something else, beforehand, in the past. So what Paul is saying, what the Lord is saying through Paul is that, look, God has chosen us in Christ. He has elected us 
before the foundation of the world. He has predestined us to be chosen. When we look biblically at the ideas of election and predestination, man, nine times out of ten, it's talking specifically about this. It's telling us about God's decision before the creation of the world that some people would be chosen and adopted as his sons and daughters. They would be adopted into his family as his children through Jesus Christ. And when we read this at first glance, man, we should, this should make us just bubble over with joy and excitement. This is a beautiful thing to know that the God of the universe has chosen to adopt rebellious humanity. This is beautiful. Adoption is always beautiful. It's always a feel-good story, just like this one. He went out to the pole barn. He heard a meowing, and he found this little baby, and it was stiff and cold, and he thought it was dead. Odds were against us right off the bat. Thought there was no chance. And then, when I mean, we never saw the mom cat after that. I put the baby down on the floor, and my dog, Mittens, came over and started sniffing, and she was meowing. She started licking it and licking it and nudging it, and then she laid down right by it, and the kitty found her and she started uh, sucking on her. After three days, my dog had milk. It's keeping it alive, it's growing like crazy, and she takes care of it and cleans it and loves it. (laughs) I didn't expect it between a cat and a dog. The vet checked her milk and everything and checked both healthy, both of them healthy, And he said, just let him do it. I don't know if she thinks it's a cat or if it's a different type of dog. I don't know, but maybe she, (laughs) I don't think she really cares. I think she's just happy to be a mom again. I have never seen anything like this before, a dog nursing a cat. I thought it was pretty cool. When I first saw about it, I didn't really believe it. No, I'd say it's a miracle, if anything. I don't know, I think it's nice. I guess, yeah, I guess our house is the house of love. (laughs) <laughs> beautiful, right? Beautiful. In so many ways. A house of love, truly. We love stories of adoption. I mean, you see something like that happen, you're like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. Some of us even in this room have been adopted. Some of us have siblings that were adopted or family members who were adopted or friends who were adopted. And man, when you see that happen, when you see that incredible story of adoption of someone finding, someone who's lost and, and broken and maybe just uh, has nowhere that they belong, suddenly finds belonging, suddenly finds their forever family, that is a beautiful thing. And that's what we see in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul is saying God has chosen to adopt us as his children. And that is something that we should appreciate. But where our issues arise is when Paul goes on to explain in verse 13 that this doesn't happen for everyone. Because he says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, when you believed in Christ, you were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, you are adopted when you believed in Christ. In other words, if you have not believed in Christ, you are not adopted. You are still a child of wrath. You are still in open rebellion against God. And you don't belong to him. And this is what 
frustrates us. And this is what gets us fired up. This is a little bit of what we talked about, remember, a few weeks ago, at the very start of everything. This fact, this, this reality, that some won't be saved. That some haven't been chosen. And when we run into this, man, we, we go to one of two directions. One of our directions is, man, it, it could make us incredibly grateful for what God has done for us. Right? When I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, I am now one of the elect. I know that I am one of the elect, that I was chosen, that I'm now a son of God. If I believe in Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, if I trust in him as my Lord and Savior for the forgiveness of my sins, I am suddenly given, I'm granted righteousness. I'm given a a place in the family of God. I'm promised eternal life with him forever. And that's beautiful. And that's something to be appreciated. It's something to be celebrated. Because, I I mean, that's the best organization you will ever join. Like, that's the best club you'll ever be a part of. When you graduate from Texas A&M, you're going to be a part of the Aggie Network. Whoop, right? And some of us are excited about that. I remember going to fish camp. That was like the first video they showed you. They're like, the Aggie Network. Everybody knows you forever. And you're like, oh my gosh, okay. And you, you get to know, like, man, when you graduate, you'll know. Like, yeah, you, once you're in, man, you can't get out. Like, you, there's certain perks. Like, you get to be whooping and woo and all that great stuff and point your finger and kick up your toes and whatever. Like, that's great. And another kind of perk is that you will receive calls for the rest of your life from Texas A&M University. Some of you in this room, I know for a fact, make those calls. And that's cool, whatever it takes to get through college. But you will receive calls for the rest of your life of people asking you, like, hey, didn't you love A&M, man? Wouldn't you love to give them some money? Like, we'll send you a bumper sticker. Like, they try to coerce you. They try to say, hey, maybe you should donate money to this. But you know what? You also get, you get to wear that ring, right? You get to wear that ring for the rest of your life. Some people, they're like, ah, I don't really like it. I personally love it. I wear it everywhere, mainly because that means when I clap, I get to go this. It's awesome. <laughs> so just so you know. Number one perk. I don't know why I don't talk about it at fish camp, but this is like the best part about it. <laughs> Clicking two rings together. But you get those perks, right? Like you get to be, you get to experience the benefits of joining that organization, of being a part of that network. If I am a part of God's family, if I've joined that network, I get to live eternally. I get to have communion with God. I get to have relationship with the God who made me, who loves me, who is faithful even when everyone around me is faithless. Man, that's a beautiful thing. And that's something to be celebrated. That's something to be appreciated. And yet, while some of us run that route and some of us go down that road, we also find ourselves going down this road where we say, that's not fair. And we object to this. One of the number one objections people have, I'd say probably the main objection people have to the idea, the doctrine of election or predestination, they say, that's not fair. How could God save some, but not all? How could he do that? not fair. And here's the reality. Is it's not fair in the way that we think of it. It's not fair in the sense that, oh yeah, things need to balance out. It's not fair because no one deserves to be a part of that network. No one deserves to be saved. That's what's not fair about it. The fact that anyone would be saved is not fair. No one deserves it. If I told 
Or let's say that I was standing here right now and I looked at the front row and I said, oh, these wonderful front row people, they're unafraid of me. We're all making eye contact right now even, and it's really good, right? We're connecting. Love you guys. Hey, good beard. And when we make that connection, man, I'm like, wow, this front row is really great. And so I give everyone on the front row $20, just every single one of them. I'm like, hey, here's 20 bucks. Go spend it on a record or something. You know, and I, they, they're excited about it. It's great. Now, the rest of you, if you saw that happen, if you watched that occur, there'd probably be something in you that kind of rises up against that, right? Some of you would maybe be like, hey, well, why didn't I get $20? Like, I needed to buy a record of something, right? Like, something within us is like, that's not fair. And again, true, but not in the sense that I need to give everyone $20. Because no one deserved it, right? No one on the front row deserves that money that I'm giving them. No one of them deserved that gift. So when I give it to them, it's, it's just out of my grace. It's out of my mercy. It's out of just my decision to, to give them that generous gift. You have no grounds to stand on. You have no valid argument to say, well, we deserve $20 too. No. No one deserves it. God has told us that he has chosen to have mercy. He's chosen to give the gift of, of grace to some people. Exodus 33 The Lord says, I will make all my goodness pass before your face. I will proclaim the Lord by name before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. And we don't have have an argument against that. No one deserves God's favor. No one deserves to be spared from his judgment. That's the definition of grace, unmerited favor. That's the definition of mercy, that you're spared from something, a punishment that you deserve. And yet God, in his grace, in his mercy, has chosen to save some. It's not fair, because the fair thing would be that everyone pays the full consequences of their sin, which is eternal separation from God. And yet God is gracious, and yet God is merciful, and we still have issue with this. We talked about this a few weeks ago. We still have issue with this because we don't know why. And the Bible doesn't give that to us. I don't know why God chooses some and not others. I don't know why God has chosen to work in that way. Is it within God's ability to save all? Absolutely. Has he chosen to do that? Apparently not. And I don't know why, but it's also not my place to demand that answer. I'm a finite being trying to understand an infinite God. Instead, I need to remember that he's good, that he's trustworthy. So even when I don't understand it, I have to trust. Even though I don't know why he's chosen what he's chosen, I know who he is, and I know what he's promised, and I know that he is good and that he promises that he will do good in our midst. So while I don't understand it, I accept it. And Paul says, man, this is, a, this is a tough thing. But for those of us that are chosen, for those of us that are elect, for those of us that were predestined to be adopted as his son, he says, he did this according to the pleasure of his will. So again, he's just saying that there's something about this that God sees as part of his plan. There's something within this that works within his plan, it works within the pleasure of his will. And we trust in that. 
And, and honestly, I, I love this passage. I love this verse right here because it's a reminder, a nice kind of refresher to us that God the Father loves us. A lot of times when we look at salvation, when we talk about salvation, we generally tend to just sort of focus entirely on Christ, which is understandable, right? We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's his work. It's his sacrifice that our faith is put in that saves us. That is, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about right there. But we forget that ultimately the plan and and the mystery of the Trinity, even though they are all God, even though they're all one, one nature, and yet somehow distinct, God the Father is the one who made this decision. God the Father is the one who put this plan in place. He was the designer of salvation. God the Father was the orchestrator of all those events. When you were back in high school and you were asking people to dances and homecoming and proms and all that stuff, how would you go about that? Right? Generally, when you decided, like, okay, uh, I need to have someone go with me to this dance, or even now, you're going to a date party or a grab date or something, you have that moment, you're like, okay, uh, step one, you have to analyze all potential candidates, right? You think about every possible person you've interacted with over the past three months, you're like, okay, which one of them would work on so many different levels, right? You've got to rate them on all these different levels. You've got to think, okay, well, you know, there's the fun level and there's the cute level, but probably most importantly, especially in high school, it's will they get along with my friends in the group, right? Like group compatibility level. Uh, they can be really awesome, but they better like Stephanie because Stephanie is my sister, you know? Like we need that <laughs> connection. So you go through those levels and you think, okay, like they're kind of here and here. And eventually you pick someone, you're like, okay, uh, you know, Sally's going to work on this, Steve's going to work, whatever. And this person's going to be it. And then you would think, well, I'll go ask him. No, of course not. Of course you don't go ask him. Instead, you get your friend in the loop and you're like, okay, it's Steve, all right? Steve's the one. Steve's the one? Yes. <laughs> go. <laughs> speak to him. And so your friend runs off, right? And they find out and they go like, okay, like, hey, uh, how would you feel about, you know, uh, I don't know, why am I a girl? So let's flip it. Okay, I'm a, I'm a boy again. Um, Jacob, so uh, Sally. So my friend, so Jimmy's going to go talk to him. Jimmy, go, like Sally, find out. And so he goes and he speaks to Sally and they kind of talk and he's like, or maybe he talks to even Sally's friend, uh, Jim Neen, and he talks to her and he's like, hey, how would Sally feel about maybe going to that thing with that guy, Jacob? Ryan didn't kind of feel it out. I'm like, okay, I think it, he comes back to me like, okay, and they were back together. And he shares with me, okay, this is what's going on. I say, okay, excellent. It's time. And then I move. <laughs> then I move into the situation. I write her the note, yes or no, or maybe, and I leave it on her desk. And she lets me know later in my locker what, you know, what she decided. I don't necessarily move immediately into that situation and speak to that girl. Right? There's a plan in place. What we need to realize about salvation is God is the ultimate designer of that. He's the ultimate orchestrator. God the Father loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us. Something that we've failed to talk about, which is sad. God the Father loves you so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die on your behalf, to live the life you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserved, so that when he was raised from the dead three days later, all of us could look to him, could trust in him, and suddenly receive the righteousness that he earned, the rewards that he earned, the life that he earned is credited to us. Because God the Father put that plan in motion. It's something 
to be appreciated, something to be celebrated. But again, it's one of those things that people get frustrated about. It's something that people kind of push back on, where they say, well, okay, that, that's great that God had this plan to save these people, but if he's choosing some people to live, it seems like, it feels like he's choosing others to die. If God is choosing people to live, he is choosing people to die. This is the idea of double election, the term we used for it, that God chooses some to live and some to die. Just as he chose this person to live, he's choosing to banish that guy, that girl to eternal torment. If you were sitting in this room and, okay, let's go back to the front row. So the front row, they're feeling great. They all got 20 bucks, right? Let's be great. Enjoy it. Uh, but I then tell them, hey, just so you guys know, though, that fan right there is going to fall, and it's going to crush all of you. I know it looks like a small fan, but it actually all the blades will just fly off, and it's somehow going to crush the entire front row if it falls. And it's going to, okay? It's going to fall. I tell the front row that. If some of them choose to remain in their seats, am I responsible for their demise. Or let's say, going back to the $20, let's say I say, hey, this is falling down. It's going to crush all of you. I see no one is moving. I see everyone's just sitting there on their phones being like, whatever. Insta, like doing whatever. And I run in and I grab a couple of them. I'm like, okay, you guys, come on. And I get them and I pull them away from their seats. Am I responsible for the deaths of the rest of them that didn't move, that didn't get up? that I didn't grab. How would that work in the court of law? Paul says, Romans 1, verse 18, something we read three weeks ago, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, against all unrighteousness, of the people who suppress the truth by their unrighteousness, because what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Paul keeps going, and as we read a few weeks ago, he says, no one has an excuse. He says, God has revealed enough of himself through general revelation, through the creation around us. He has revealed enough that everyone alive, in existence, all seven billion people on the earth right now are without excuse. They've seen enough, there's been enough revealed to them that they should acknowledge that there is a God, that there is a creator. There's enough in the world that points them to that fact so that none of them, they don't have an excuse. No one's problem is ignorance. Everyone's problem is rebellion. That's what we see in Romans 1. Everyone has chosen death. They've chosen to sit in that seat while I'm able to save some. Maybe I don't save all. It doesn't make me responsible for their death. They are ultimately responsible for that decision for that rebellion. But at this point, some people then say, okay, well, that kind of throws me off because how does free will work into that? Right? Like, How do people then make decisions? If they're in that seat, some people would make the argument, well, they're chained down to that seat. Like, they, can't, they can't get up. If we hold to the idea of original sin, these people, they're not going to get up because they can't. So how do we reconcile that? How does free will mix in with God's sovereignty? Paul himself says in Romans chapter 3, he's quoting Old Testament. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is 
no one who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. In other words, he says, yeah, for anyone to respond to the gospel, for anyone to put their faith in Jesus Christ, it requires God's intervention. We see this in Scripture. The Holy Spirit must convict someone, must grab a hold of somebody, pull them back. No one seeks after God on their own. It says God has to tap him on the shoulder, grab him by the shoulder, grab him by the neck, pull him back. So how do we reconcile that? How do we bring that together? How do we kind of bring, how do we resolve that tension? And it's hard. And I don't have a perfect answer. But what we see in the scripture is that God's intervention doesn't violate people's personal choice because as we kind of already said, People choose sin. People choose death. They're born into it, for sure. We're born as slaves of sin, and yet we still choose that sin time and again. We see this even, especially in a Christian's life, in someone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of their sins, for someone who is a believer. Those people will still, even though they have freedom from sin, they still choose it. They still turn back and they say, well, I think I want to kind of get this thing. That's why Paul spends times in Colossians saying, hey, you've got to cast that off. You've got to run away from that. That's why Christ tells us we need to flee temptation. We need to flee. We need to run in the opposite direction of these old ways, of these old desires. Because they're still appealing. Even though we know they lead to death, we still choose them. We still want to walk down that path. If anyone was left alone, if a non-believer was left alone in their condition of choosing sin, choosing death, and choosing it over and over and over again, their freedom would never be violated. We've chosen death. But God in His mercy reaches in, grabs some, pulls them out, gives them even greater freedom. They have some. But He says, look, you don't even need to be free to choose. You're free to choose these things. And sometimes we run back, but He says, come on. Take this new path. How exactly does that work? Again, I don't know. I don't know exactly. The Bible's not crystal clear. It's a hard tension to hold. But what I do know is that God is good. That he's promised that he is doing good in our midst. So even though I don't understand it, I'm going to trust him. Even though we don't understand it, we're actually going to talk about this more in a couple weeks. We're going to look at that. What is, we're going to look at that tension. We're going to look at that hard-to-resolve thing of where does sovereignty, free will, where does it all kind of mix? How does it play out in our lives? Again, there's no kind of black and white. There's no for sure answer. How exactly do they mesh? I'm not sure. But we still get to talk about it. We still get to think about it. It's a good thing to ponder. But as you're doing so, you need to remember that foundation. God is good. Whatever it is, I mean, we should trust him. Because ultimately, the thing that we need to understand about salvation, the thing we need to understand about election, the thing we need to understand about predestination, is that ultimately, it's not actually about us. See, that's where a lot of our tension, that's where a lot of our frustration, that's where our uh, uncomfortableness or our confrontation comes from, is the fact that we look at the situation, we think, well, how does that affect me? Or how does that affect Jimmy, or how does that affect Sally? Like, how does this affect the people around me? 
And we get caught up in that, and it makes us angry about some things or, or frustrated about other things or confused about other stuff. But what we need to realize, what we see in Scripture, is that ultimately election, predestination, it's not about us. We're not the focus of this system. We're not the center of our universe. Instead, when we see the idea, the doctrine of election discussed, when we see the idea of predestination brought up, when we read Ephesians chapter 1, we notice, wait a minute, this is pointing in a different direction. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we might be holy and unblemished in his sight and love. He did this by predestining us to adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace that he has freely bestowed on us in his dearly loved son. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He did this when he revealed to us the secret of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ toward the administration of the fullness of the times, to head up all things in Christ, the things in heaven and, on, and the things on earth. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession, since we were predestined according to the one purpose of him, who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to set our hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. What do we see over and over and over again in the discussion of election, the discussion of predestination? Is that we're not the focus. It's God. It's all about God. It's all about the praise of His glory. It's exalting His name, His status. It's all about fulfilling His purpose, His will. And when we have that kind of perspective shift, when we look at this and we think, okay, it's not about me, it's about the Lord, suddenly that frees us from a lot of those doubts. It frees us from a lot of that frustration. Because suddenly I'm not worried about, well, like, what does this mean for me? Or like, what does it mean for him? Instead, it makes me think, like, so what does God want out of this? What's his purpose? How do I align with that will? He's the one who saved me out of death and destruction. So what does he want me to do now? What's the path that he set me on? What's the new purpose that I've found in my life? That's why Paul tells us right at the very front end. He says, look, there are things that we've been saved to. There are things that we've been saved for the purpose of. In verse 4, he told us we were saved. Well, let's bring it up. He says, He chose us before the foundation of the world that we may be holy and unblemished in his sight in love. He chose us so that we might be holy and unblemished in love. That love is speaking to us. In other words, he's laid out three things. He says, this is why this whole thing's happening. So that we might be holy, so that we might be unblemished, and that we might find ourselves in love. When people look at you, when people have their first interaction with you, right? We, everyone talks about the importance of first impressions. You've got to, you go to a job fair or something like that, and you're going to start doing interviews and meet and greets and all that stuff. Man, you'll have teachers, you'll have counselors, you'll have parents tell you, like, man, strong handshake, right? Like, got to get that right. Like, make sure it's just the right amount of moisture. Like, keep a towel 
or a wipe nearby just in case, some lotion for in between or whatever. You know, like they say, you got to make sure you got the handshake, maintain that eye contact, like really good eye contact. Like until everyone's a little bit uncomfortable with the eye contact, you just maintain it. Why? Because that first impression is really important. You ask them those really good questions. You, you say your name, your full name. I'm Jacob Lawrence Smith. Like you tell them with authority, you stand up tall, you keep your shoulders back or whatever it is. I don't know how it works now, but that's how it always been mine. You would fight them in gladiatorial combat. Do they still do that? No? Okay, well. But we, we have those tips and tricks. Why? Because we know first impressions are so important. We have been saved. We've been raised to be holy. Literally what that means is we have been called to be set apart. When someone looks at your life, do they see someone that's set apart? Do they see someone who is different from the world around them? When someone interacts with you for the very first time, do they see you or do they see God through you? What are you pointing at? What are your words directed towards? What are your actions directed towards? What's your attitude directed towards? What's your work ethic directed towards? Even when you're really tired, even when you're exhausted, even when you've been up all night doing that project or working on that thing or you've been dealing with this frustration, what's your willingness to be engaged and loving and kind and forgiving towards others? What's that point at? Is it different from the world around you? God has saved us so that we might, so that we might be holy, so that we might be set apart, so that we might be blameless. Jesus Christ's death, talked about this last week, has paid for the penalty of our sin. He was our atonement. He was our propitiation. He saved us so that we would be freed from sin, to redeem us, right? To pay that great price, to pull us out of sin, to pull us away from death. But do you feel forgiven? Do you act and live as someone who's forgiven? Or do you hold on to these guilts and these these, these just dark memories of mistakes you've made that, man, maybe those happen and maybe there does need to be some reconciliation between you and another person, but do you feel forgiven in that? Have you recognized you need to not just beat yourself up for the rest of your life because Jesus Christ paid for those sins? Do you feel forgiven? Or are you overcome with, with guilt, with shame? And then are you fleeing from sin right now? There's a, an issue in your life or a relationship in your life or an attitude in your life or whatever it is in your life that you know is wrong, you know is against the Lord's will. You're living in such a way or you're speaking in such a way, you're behaving in such a way that you know is counter to what the Lord has designed for you. You know that you're immersed in some sort of sin, some habitual, repetitive sin. Are you willing to run from that? To ask the Lord to give you the strength to flee that temptation. To ask your, your brother or your sister to keep you accountable you would abstain from that. We've been saved so that we might be holy. We've been saved so that we might be blameless. And we've been saved so that we might be all of these things in love. God has given us an incredible gift of love and grace. No one on the front row deserves 20 bucks. And yet, God has chosen save some. None of us sitting in this room deserve salvation. None of us deserve forgiveness. And yet God, in his grace and his mercy, has chosen to save some. So do we live 
in such a way that we share that gift with others? Do we extend the love that we've received? Do we extend the grace and forgiveness that we've received? Do we love others as much as we've been loved? Are we willing to sacrifice for that roommate who keeps frustrating us? Are we willing to serve our parents even though they keep making those weird things or there's that frustration in that relationship? Are we willing to step outside of our comfort zone and share the gospel with someone that we know needs to hear it? Are we willing to love them so much that we don't want to let them just sit in their rebellion, sit in their death and in their destruction? Do we love them enough to just sit next to them on that bench, on that bus, across that lab table, in, on that couch, in your living room? Are we loving enough to sit with them and share with them the good news of Jesus Christ? They don't deserve it, but neither do you. The band's going to come up and they're going to lead us through a few more songs in worship as we turn to God in the midst of, again, this can be confusing and this can be uh, strange and frustrating. And if you have questions, I'd love to talk to you. But as they do this, I just want to, I want to read a quote from a, one of our most famous evangelists uh, of our, definitely our modern era, a guy named Billy Graham, who, I mean, you just, you hear the name because he was active for years and years and years, uh, going on his crusades and sharing the gospel and packing out stadiums and, and talking with people. And one of the things that was amazing about Billy Graham was that he had this consistency in his ministry where he was just always fired up, man. This, this was a man who was just incredible and his passion and his vigor for the Lord, for sharing the gospel. Was he perfect? Absolutely not. None of us are. But he had this this, this passion, this, this desire, this preaching out of, of a need, of a desperation for people to hear the gospel, that was beautiful. And I love, there's an interview where they were talking to him about this, and they were bringing up, man, like, how do you maintain this sense of desperation in your preaching? How do you maintain this, this passion for the lost? And he looked at the interview and he said, well, the most important issue that we face today is the same that the church has faced in every century. Will we reach our world for Christ? So that's the biggest question we've ever wrestled with. Always have, always will. Will I reach the world for Christ? In other words, will we give priority to Christ's command or to go into all the world and preach the gospel? Or will we turn increasingly inward? caught up in our own internal affairs or controversies, simply becoming more and more comfortable with the status quo? Will we become inner-directed or outer-directed? He says the central issues of our time aren't economic or political or social. Important as these are, they're not the central issue. The central issues of our time are moral and spiritual in nature. Our calling is to declare Christ's forgiveness and hope and transforming power to a world that does not know him or follow him. May we never forget this. Said it before, I'll say it again. The resounding call of this entire series on salvation is that we can't forget that there are people around us who need to hear the gospel. So who are you speaking to? Who are you living with? Who are you surrounded by that needs to hear this? 
they're lost and they're confused and they don't have a place where they belong. And some of them know it and some of them don't. But your family member, or your coworker, or your classmate, or your lab partner, or your friend that you've known for years need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. They need to hear that Jesus Christ died for their sins so that they might have life. May we never forget that. Let's pray. God, we, we thank you that, Lord, even in the midst of, of a confusing topic, God, even in the midst of something like election or predestination, God, even in the midst of big words or, or, or issues that have divided scholars for years and years, God, we, we thank that even in the midst of that confusion that you still have offered us some clarity. That, God, there's always a central truth that we can return to. God, there's always a foundation we can rest on, which is that you are good. That you're worthy of our trust. That your love never fails. That you never give up. So if you would take a moment right now, pray to the Lord and ask him to show you, man, what, who's that person in your life? Maybe you've been praying for him for the last few weeks. Man, I, I hope you have. Ask the Lord to maybe even just remind you of that person that you've already been praying for, or maybe to bring to mind a new person. Someone else who he has called you to go to speak the gospel to, to, to live with in such a way that they want to hear what you have to say. Ask the Lord to bring to your mind right now, and where do you have the opportunity to live in such a way that is holy and blameless in love, to live in such a way that people would see your life and want to know the God that you claim. Ask him that right now.